but the idea that if you're not human and you need to keep a low profile, why do you become a world-famous celebrity? After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show The theme song to the sequel cast is performed and written by Mark with a C. Check out his latest album, Motherfuckers Be Bullshitting, at markwithac.bandcamp.com. And now we return you to the sequel cast. Uh, well, this cat is a, uh, a witness yeah, in a murder case. I'm going to need to take him with me ask him a few questions. Well, I don't know where the cat is right now. Oh, you don't? No, but maybe you could take me with you instead. <laughs> Damn, you do start fast, don't you? I'd really like to go with you. Now. Uh-huh. And, uh, exactly why is that? Welcome to the Sequelcast. The Sequelcast is a show that talks about movies in a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt. We're kicking off a new series of films with looking at the Men in Black trilogy. This episode, we are starting with Men in Black, released in 1997, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, stars Tommy Lee Jones, Will Smith, and Linda Fiorentino, Vincent D'Onofrio, Rip Torn, and Tony Shalhoub. This is based on the uh, very short-lived independent comic book series Men in Black by Malibu Comics that later got bought out by Marvel. It has uh, special effects by Rick Baker, written by Ed Solomon, who also was one of the writers of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure uh, films. And uh, music by Danny Elfman, cinematography Donald Peterman. And it was released by uh, Columbia Pictures, which is um, owned by Sony. And uh, off a budget of $90 million worldwide, made $589 million. So, extremely popular film, the summer of 97. Uh, with me is Thrasher. We have a website, sequelcast.com. You can also look us up on iTunes or go to facebook.com slash sequelcast to look at the Facebook page. And um, we also have a few sponsors, to spend a few seconds on those. We are an Amazon affiliate. Yeah, we always do, of course. Uh, if you go to sequelcast.com and look on the left, you see a link to a bunch of our sponsors. Uh, we're an Amazon affiliate, and we have an Amazon.com link. If you just click in there, uh, you know, before you start shopping on Amazon.com, uh, we get a cut of uh, whatever you purchase, so that's greatly appreciated. And if you go to stitcher.com slash sequelcast and sign up for the app Stitcher, which lets you listen to podcasts of all kinds, not just the sequelcast, uh, on the go on your smartphone, you can even listen to it on your laptop or a personal computer. You can have a chance to win a hundred American dollars. Just go to stitcher.com slash sequelcast. And listen to us on Stitcher. Very good, Thrasher. And of course, our uh, theme song is done by Mark with the C. And uh, you can go to his website at markwiththec.com. And he has so many great albums he's released on there where you can listen to samples of them or purchase the albums either as a whole album or track by track through Bandcamp. It's a really uh, lovely system they have over there. So, we're talking about The Men in Black, 97. Did you see this in the theater, Thrasher? I saw this in the theater at least three times. This was 
And this was a fantastic movie. It's everything everything I wanted in a feel-good summer blockbuster at the time. Yeah, I, I recall seeing this um, with my mom in the theater. And I think, you know, it was in between freshman and uh, sophomore year of high school, I believe. And we drive back, and the movie has all the aliens and stuff. We drive back from the theater and in, uh, in front of our uh, subdivision to where uh, my mom and I lived at the time. There's sort of a little swamp, and we saw a uh, a possum come out in the middle of the road. And with the bright lights from the car shining on the possum, it looked almost like an alien from Men in Black itself. <laughs> and we both sort of screamed and then kept on driving, because possums are not that unusual of a sight, even in the uh, wealthy suburbs of uh, Marietta, Georgia. So, If anything, they're more of a problem there. Uh, that's true. Even, even my sister's wedding was uh, off of... Um, an island off the coast of I forget if it was Georgia or Florida but these you know they're like these four star hotels on this island and everything where the wedding was at and there was a possum that came out during the sort of uh, buffet sort of like cheeseburgers and soup dinner that was uh, the night before the wedding and a possum just came out to hang out and say hello and so a bunch of the men had to get like uh, brooms and scare the possum off so, so the possum didn't didn't object it forever held its peace he did. You know, the possums aren't aggressive. They just look really scary, and they can be dangerous if you get bitten or something. But they they get more startled than people by uh, you might think. So, but yeah. Now uh, I've never even read this comic book, and I, I was doing some research. And the Men in Black comic book is fairly obscure. It, it is very difficult to find. It had a small print run. It had a, a, a short a short run. It was originally published by uh, Aircell, which then was bought out by Malibu Comics, which. Then later, Malibu Comics was brought out by Marvel Comics, which is why you see, I think, like a Marvel Marvel Comics... There's like a Marvel Comics logo that shows up, or, or a producer credit that shows up in the opening credits of, of this film. But it was, it was a comic book that, that, that played around with some of the UFO and conspiracy theory lore involving the men in black. I do have to say, though, it, it, it's well worth checking out... Uh, uh, both Men in Black and the Malibu comics in general, they also did a great series called Dinosaurs for Hire. Uh, I believe they also did The Next Men. Oh, The New Mutants. New Mutants was the other big one they did. Now, was New Mutants, was that an X-Men spinoff? No, no, it has nothing to do with the X-Men. It was a post-apocalyptic uh, superhero comic. Gotcha. Well, I mean, yeah. even before this movie and the comic Men in Black came out, the term Men in Black was in popular culture... Especially with things like the X Files being ahead around I'm the same time. Gonna, I'm going to dispute you on that. Uh, yeah. Up up until that, up until this movie came out, uh, the Men in Black were a more obscure part of UFO lore because you know everybody by that point everybody knew about alien abductions. Everyone was making jokes about anal probes, but the Men in Black phenomenon was was a bit more obscure. Uh, they hmm. would uh, rarely get mentioned on shows like Sightings. It was. The men, at the time, Men in Black was something that you had to be a real diehard UFO buff, which I was at the time to, under, to, to really be into. The Men in Black didn't show up on uh, the X-Files, I think, until later on in the run where they did that episode where Alex Trebek and Goldberg from the WCW were uh, Men in Black agents. Great episode. Yeah, and uh, if you like UFOs, um, there's an interesting documentary. It might still be on Netflix. Watch instantly. I'm not sure. Called Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs. Oh yeah. 
It's the actor Dan Aykroyd, who's been a big... Um, I was about to say conspiracy theorist. I don't know if that's accurate. Well, right? he likes he he's a huge fan of the paranormal. He's he's yeah, right. You know, he, yep. he, he's like a kind of a he's like a comedic Charles Fort. And I mean, he he's extensively interviewed in uh, this documentary, Dan Aykroyd Unplugged in UFOs. And at first, you think, oh, this might be a joke, but he clearly isn't kidding. And he knows a lot about the subject, um, for what it's worth. I know. UFOs are something people take with a, a grain of salt, but I think the timing of you know the release of this Men in Black movie was just about perfect. Uh, the, a few years before Men in Black, you know, Will Smith was kind of blowing up on the big screen with Bad Boys with uh, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith, and then Independence Day was the real huge one. Oh yeah. Um, with uh, Harry Connick Jr., um, Bill Pullman, Randy Quaid, Jeff Goldblum, right? Yeah, all sorts of actors in that film. So, and this sort of continued, and you think about Will Smith, uh, you might not think science fiction at first glance, but he's done quite a lot of very successful science fiction films well, in his career. Well, Independence Day was such a huge hit, it was inevitable that he would be in other science fiction blockbusters, but he, but he's really made a career out of it. Uh, he's done the Men in Black series, uh, I, Robot, which was suggested by Isaac Asimov. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 I have nothing but respect for the, for, for Dr. Asimov, and I, I, I disapprove of the way that movie handled the source material. Oh, I Am Legend, that's another one I could get in a rant about. You know, iRobot, I, I wasn't able to make it through the whole movie, but I, I did like the special effects and the look of the robots themselves. You I know, thought the that robots, was at least kind of interesting. The robots look perfect. That's almost exactly how I imagined them reading the iRobot stories. The problem is that's the only thing that they have, they really took from the, the, the written material. Right, uh, but we're not talking about iRobot or Will Smith's uh, career to date. We're talking about Men in Black. Oh, yeah. Um, and, of course, Will Smith did a single on the radio uh, for Men in Black called Men in Black. That was a huge hit song that summer. Yeah, the, he he hasn't done that recently, but it used to be if Will Smith was in a was in a, a blockbuster, he was going to be doing some sort of song for it. Uh, I believe, yeah, and the the Men in Black single he did for this, it was uh, it heavily sampled the song "Forget Me Not." Who was "Forget Me Not" by? I don't remember. Sadly, I'm I'm not as up on that uh, on that genre of music. But it's, you know, send me forget me nots. Mm, wow, yeah, yeah, right. that is the same. It, yeah, it's, it's a, the it's same really melody and everything, right? And uh, I do know a piece of trivia that was big in the magazines at the time. With that Men in Black song, you have all the female vocals, vocals, the Men in Black, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Except more on key than that. <laughs> uh, those uh, female backing vocals were done by Mariah Carey. Oh, or at least some of them that. were. So um, that was a bit of trivia. Uh, yeah, Men in Black, you know, even though I saw this once in theater, I never owned it on videotape or DVD. I just rented it uh, on DVD uh, for the show to watch it. And I thought I hadn't seen it in a while, but it turns out I had every scene almost memorized. <laughs> I must have seen this on TV a lot. I have a feeling TBS it's uh, that kind, or TNT it's that kind played of this all the time. It's that kind of movie. It is very quotable. It has a lot of, it has a lot of memorable scenes. I'm going to say something. It'll sound like an insult. I don't mean it to be. But Men in Black is like a science fiction film you can watch with your grandmother. Hmm. In that it's a very accessible sort of concept. You know, it is a real family film. Like, and, and the violence yeah. is kind of... 
there, well, there's really not there's not much violence, but there's a lot of action, and it's all in a sort of semi slapstick, almost Warner Brothers cartoon kind of way. I guess before we talk about the movie proper, um, so this was made in '97. Uh, we're recording this as of May 2012. Mm-hmm. So this film is 15 years old. What did you think of the special effects? They hold up. The only the only effect that isn't quite as good as it could be is uh, the, the the CGI. Well, he, there's two. Okay, there's two effects that don't quite hold up in my mind. One is the CGI dragonfly in, in, during the opening credit sequence, but I think that's intentional. I think that's supposed to look fake. Uh, and then shortly after that is the first alien you see the Men in Black encounter. Uh, it looks it looks fantastic, except when it jumps at the camera. When it jumps in the camera, you can kind of you, you you can see you can see the the, the gaps in the effects technology. But other than that, I find everything in this in this movie holds together very very well. It's it's like the original Star Wars. The effects are handled with such artistry and are integrated with the narrative so completely that the effects are for the most part timeless. You know, I thought you were going to say, for me, the special effects that did not hold up was in the end, where the uh, the bug reveals its form, and it's this giant praying, or I don't know what you'd call it, like a praying mantis. It's a roach beast, uh, I'd say. Yeah, it's like, yeah, exactly, cockroaches, right, with the joke at the end of the film. Like a big cockroach monster. And I, I think that didn't hold up. Not, I thought the design looked okay, but they've certainly come since a long way since then with doing shadows, multiple layers of textures mm-hmm. and things. And more better integration of CG into a live action environment. Uh, well, I think that that honestly works in in the in uh, Ed, the Edgar monster's favor because it it is its chitinous. It should be shiny in that disgusting way that roaches so often are. So that that CGI shine that comes on it, I, I feel enhances it a bit. Hmm. Um. So with Men in Black, uh, you know, some other casting they considered early on for the film. Is they originally offered the Tommy Lee Jones part to uh, Clint Eastwood. Oh, that would have been awesome. That would have been cool, but he turned it down, not, surpri- not surprisingly. I mean, Clint Eastwood has been writing and directing, or at least he's been directing and starring in his own films for decades now. And I think at that time he might have still been doing some studio projects as an uh-huh. actor, but certainly not big main... He did more like sort of political thrillers, right? It wasn't like these like mainstream... Sort of science fiction pieces, well, but that yeah, would have I mean, been I, fun I, to see. I, yeah, he, he generally doesn't do uh, d- doesn't do blockbusters. Uh, and, and no dis no disrespect to Tommy Lee Jones, but I bet he would have done a, an amazing performance. Right, and uh, as a kid, I liked uh, Will Smith more. But watching this as I get older, I, I think Tommy Lee Jones is funnier. No, no, he does. He he. Tommy Lee Jones is uh, the thing that I love about his character is that he's so matter-of-fact, blue-collar, professional about absolutely everything. He plays everything so straight, it's brilliant. It just it makes the comedy much, that much stronger. It very much reminds me of Dan Aykroyd in the Ghostbusters. Yeah, but even then, Dan Aykroyd is playing a very earnest character. Yeah, he's right, and they have to deliver, they deliver a lot of techno-babble, but they do it with complete conviction and at a rapid-fire pace, reminiscent of, like, 1930s comedies. Yeah. And it's a wonderful contrast between Will Smith's delivery where Will Smith, uh, you know, I don't know, I've never met him in person, but certainly in a lot of the roles he plays, he plays characters with a lot of swagger, with a lot of confidence, and sort of a smart-ass comeback that's not too mean. 
Yeah, they they do have they do have a, a perfect sort of a perfect dyad. I mean, they really they really do work as as I, I hate I hate the phrase buddy cops, but they are they work perfectly as buddy cops. You know who else was considered for the Will Smith part? Uh, who else? Chris O'Donnell. Huh. And he turned it down because he was doing Dick Grayson in the Batman films and thought it was a bit too similar. Well, society's lost, it, I guess. Yeah, and they offered it to David Schwimmer, um, mm. <laughs> which would have been different. I'm sure the, the script was written very differently for those uh, two actors. And um, But, you know, Will Smith ended up doing it. I think it's a great, great casting. A casting and, uh, and Will Smith has a lot more confidence, I think, in this part. He doesn't come off as green as he does in Independence Day. Even though for years Will Smith was on the show Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and had been a rapper with DJ Jazzy Jeff and later on with his solo career, he certainly didn't have a lack of experience in the entertainment industry as a whole. But as far as a leading man or this sort of thing, um, you know, Men in Black was him up and center. and Independence Day, he was more of a supporting part. Yeah, well, Will Smith showed that he could act in Six Degrees of Separation. Uh, mm. But yeah, he, he, really, he really is a much better... In, in many ways, he's a much better action hero uh, in this film than he was in Independence Day. In Independence Day, all he has to do is act a little bit cocky and deliver some one-liners. But in uh, Men in Black, he he gets to play a real character. That's something. That's something else I like. Agent J and Agent K are real characters with their own arcs. And yet, like any origin film, whether you're talking about I don't know Spider-Man One or like the Michael Keaton Batman movie, you know they don't even reach the. Uh Men in Black headquarters until over halfway through the film. Well, I this think, film is I think very, works. very slight on plot. You think it works? I think it works because because we're we're being brought into this world with Will Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if doing it any other way would require front loading the film with a with a load of exposition, which I've I've as I've said I really don't like. Um, you know they. In the opening scene, they establish that the men in black exist. They kind of establish what they do, what their methods are. And then we go into how Will Smith gets brought into this organization. And we get to go on that journey with Will Smith. And all the important stuff that Will Smith learns we, that we need to know, we learn with him. So that, as a result, there's, there's, no, there's no redundant information. There's no uh, lengthy exposition. And we just We go through his training with him. Where do you want to start talking about the film proper? Well, There's so many famous scenes in this movie. Well, we might as well. I mean, we might as well start with with you know the inciting incidents. Uh, you know, the Men in Black are, are tracking down a, a, a rogue alien, which they inevitably have to shoot and blow up. Uh, and Jay uh, or. Tommy Lee Jones, you know, character. He's working with a partner, and the partner's getting on in years and decides that he wants to that he wants to retire. Uh, and so Tommy Lee Jones said, well, if you want to retire, you retire. And so Tommy Lee Jones erases his memory, uh, because that, that's standard men in black policy. Uh, they, they have, they have equipment that erases memories. He erases his partner's memories so that he forgets all about the men in black and then has to go out to find, uh, to find, uh, a new, uh, MIB agent. Well, and the neuralizer is a very effective device in the plot in, um, all the men in black movies. Because it looks like it looks a little bit like a vibrator, I suppose, but it, it looks like or or a rabbit or something. But it's a really tiny device, and the flash of light, the effect of the flash of light, especially if you see it projected on the big screen in a movie theater, yeah. kind of blinds the audiences, like it blinds the characters. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's another it's another very well done effect. And it's not a fancy effect either, but it it just plain works. It's a quick flash of a few frames of bright bright white, and it gets the point across. And uh, you know, in the beginning, you have this joke about they're pulling over a truck full of illegal immigrants, illegal aliens into the U.S. And wait, one of them is actually an alien from outer space. So there's that bit of, I wouldn't say social commentary. I think that's a bit much, but... No, it's not really, it's, no I, I wouldn't call it social commentary. But it, it's to, to prove the point that on Earth there's all these aliens that people don't realize, but they're there, and the men in black know who they are, and just sort of, I guess, make sure they're not harming anyone, but they're, they're well, still keeping track of, like, crimes, right? They're kind of cops well, a little bit, right? Well, the way it's explained, when, when, when uh, Tommy Lee Jones explains the origin of the men in black, it's that... You know the men, the original, the founding members of the Men in Black were ufologists who ended up making first contact with some aliens, and they cut a deal with the aliens that they would help, that they would make Earth an apolitical, they would make Earth an apolitical zone, you know, a place, a place to keep, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, a place of refuge for certain aliens, and in exchange, the Men in Black would get access to technology and whatnot. Um, so, so as as it's set. Uh, so as it's set up, but the thing is, I guess now with Earth being an apolitical zone because of this treaty, a side effect of that is it seems like a lot of aliens come to Earth to get away from the law, and so the Men in Black have to deal with them. In addition to helping uh, alien refugees on Earth maintain their cover, and that that is one thing that the film doesn't exactly explain, but probably it's best that it doesn't is explaining just why the hell all these different aliens are, are on Earth. Like, I mean, I mean specifically, like, like Tony Shalhoub's alien pawn shop guy. Why the hell would he need to come to an apolitical zone? <laughs> I think, like you were saying, the amount of exposition required to try and explain all these things would just bore the audience. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, Men in Black, uh, the, the first film, which is what we're talking about, MIB is a very fast-paced film. It doesn't waste a whole lot of time. You do have a lot of setup of characters and so on. And uh, in fact, when they introduce uh, Will Smith's character, Jay, he is a uh, New York City detective and he's chasing down a, a guy, I think, that stole a purse or something, but he's running really fast and can jump off walls. And Will Smith is wearing these like neon orange hammer pants. He's undercover, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, even at the time, I think those pants looked a bit dated. But um, you get this sort of action scene, and there's humor in there, and all these. You see a glimpse of weird alien weaponry. You're still not quite sure what's going on with this movie at this point. And in the middle of this, you have the villain, Edgar, you know, uh, played by Vincent D'Onofrio of Full Metal Jacket fame. That's what I think of him from. But he's been in so many things. And uh, he makes a really scary bad guy. Well, he's like... He, the, the character Edgar, because it's an alien bug wearing a guy's skin. And, like, that right yeah. there is just, it's just super creepy. But he looks he looks like a murdering hillbilly. Like, he looks like he stepped out of a, of a low-budget slasher movie, but in the best possible way. When the makeup by Rick Baker is so fascinating, because there's not... I don't think there's a whole lot of CG as far as when he's walking around and stuff. I think a lot of that's practical effects. 
and the face and the neck and all this stuff is slightly pulled back and slightly off. So he never has like a really good posture. He he just looks creepy. Oh yeah, he then, always just moves so weird. I mean, he he is yeah. giving his all to this performance. And then his voice is just gets across the alien idea too. He's like, "Get me water with sugar in it. No more, 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 more. more. I, yeah. I, I want it." More. Yeah, you know the way the way he talks, he sounds like an alien trying to impersonate a human who's really <laughs> pleased at how well he thinks he's pulling off the disguise. Like, alien no. smarm comes across. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen anything. <laughs> yeah, great. but I think also, I mean, even though there's humor to it, I think the villain is a bit threatening. Or if not threatening, certainly very weird and comes off as dangerous. And they don't give the the main bug dressed in the Edgar suit, as it were, that big of a backstory. It's all fairly simple. He does, he and that's all it one. needs he's, to be. He's after something. Right. Yeah. He's on Earth. He is after, even though what he's after is kind of vague, but he's after the galaxy. Well, we, we, we find out later, yeah, because there, there's an alien ambassador that's, that's hiding yeah. out on Earth. Or was it no? It wasn't an ambassador. It was like an a member of uh, some member of alien royalty that was being visited by an ambassador, and that he's entrusted with this piece of regalia that is simply known as the galaxy. But they never, they never really, up until the very end, they never really say what it is. No, and even the reveal of what it is is more metaphysical. Like it, it doesn't make much sense. But it's it's truly a MacGuffin in every sense of the word. It's a it's a goal that the villain and the heroes are trying to find that moves yeah. the plot along. Good, good source goal, for generating conflict. I mean, they do mention the conflict that what these these alien races are going to go to war if they don't get the galaxy, and so yeah, they have to get it and deliver it to them before the bug gets it for well, himself. Well, it's so it's so important to them. Yes, they're they're willing they're willing to uh, to to vaporize the earth if they can't get it so that right then there that introduces a ticking clock the men in black have to secure the galaxy and return it to its rightful owners before they decide to open their weapon ports and uh, scorch the earth I do really like the logic that the whole reason why uh, Tommy Lee Jones Agent K is that right I always get it confused J&K I I assume so I'm just going to call him Tommy Lee Jones (laughs) No, he's agent. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. That's easier. You're right, Thrasher, of course. <laughs> uh, Tommy Lee Jones recruits Will Smith into the Men in Black because he sees footage of him chasing after this humanoid alien with all these superpowers on foot, and Will Smith is just a regular man. Well, the other thing is that Will, Will Smith is highly aware that something's, that something's not right. Like, right. you know, he notices, he, he, he's very vocal about the fact that this guy is doing superhuman things. And, and this is the most important part, that he blinks twice. He has a second yep. set of eyelids. <laughs> and I really love the scene of the entrance exam they take to be a Men in Black, because you see, like, top Army, Air oh, Force, yeah. Marine, brass, top, you know, top of the class, West Point, all this stuff. And then Will Smith is there, like a fish out of water. Oh, and they're yeah. given this sort of these the sort of accordion set of papers folded on top of each other in a teeny little pencil. And they're sitting in these like 1970s looking cube chairs, which I've always wanted to have one of those. Oh, and pretty uh, cool. where I live in Portland, Oregon, um, up here we have a lot of vintage stores. So I've seen seats like that for sale and at vintage stores around here, they run between, it's like 50 bucks a piece or something. Mm. 
and, and I've sat inside them in the vintage stores. They're not very comfortable. They're very cute looking. But as far as practicality, I can't imagine lounging in one of those chairs unless you put in a really good back support. I don't know. Are you drinking anything, Thrasher? Uh, just water right now. I'm, uh, I'm saving up uh, for Comic Palooza in San Antonio, Texas. You're going to buy a bottle of something special? for? Why don't you talk a little bit about Comic Palooza? Well, oh, I'm sorry, Houston, Texas. Well, if I must. No, uh, Comic Palooza is a, is a comic, sci-fi, fantasy, and just all-around fandom uh, convention in Houston, Texas. It's going to be going on May 25th to the 27th. And a whole lot of people are going to be there. Joe Kubert's going to be there. George Takei is going to be there. Uh, but I'm going to be there in two capacities. One, I'm going to be running a significant number of LARPs down there. So if you like live-action role-playing, you know, check me out. I'll be doing uh, Cthulhu Lives and Wertel Chupacabra, uh, To Be a Pirate King for the Fading Suns, and another Cthulhu Live Wild West game, The Gunman of Red Canyon. Uh, then I'm also going to be there with uh, Skirmisher Publishing, which is a, a game company that I work for. We, we're going to have... Uh, Volume 4, D-Infinity, is going to be released with a special edition there. Uh, we're also releasing our first novel, Swords of Coast Necropolis. So if you like you know, old-fashioned sword and sorcery novels in the, in the tradition of Fritz Lieber, we are, we're going to have that there. It's going to be the, the print premiere of that book. We're, so were you involved with the... Time. I'm sorry, were you involved with the novel at all, Thrasher? Uh, yes, yes, actually. I, uh, I, did the, I did the graphic design on the novel's oh, okay. cover. Uh, I yeah. also uh, I also did the uh, map illustrations because it is not an official fantasy novel unless the first page is taken <laughs> up by, the, by a map. Cool. No, that sounds very interesting. It is. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So no, if anyone wants to put a face to Thrasher from Sequel Cast, come see me at the Skirmisher booth at Comic Palooza in Houston, Texas. <laughs> very good. I don't know why I laughed just then. That wasn't really funny what you said. Well, I don't know. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna save my drinking for the. Uh, oh, that's the other thing. Skirmisher uh, Skirmisher Publishing is having its its tenth anniversary party at Comic Palooza, and uh, that's where I'm gonna do my heavy drinking. Uh, among other things, we are going to play beer pong with catapults. Now, in Texas, is it legal to buy absinthe? Because I have you can buy it no in- idea. <laughs> Okay, because you can buy it from liquor stores in Oregon. It's about $50 a bottle. Uh, I just thought absinthe is something you'd enjoy. Right? Oh, no, I do enjoy it. I've, I've, yeah, I've yeah. had it. Uh, it, is a, it is a marvelous, marvelous beverage. Very good. You know what else is marvelous? Men in Black 1, which we're talking about on the sequel cast. What? Who? Before, yeah, before we get back, <laughs> I do want to mention, uh, I've started a little Kickstarter project where the idea Thrasher and I have been talking about for quite some time about doing a spinoff of the sequel cast where it'd be the same idea talking about something that franchise one entry at a time but it would be focused on video games as opposed to uh, movies and it would be called the video game sequel cast podcast but podcast costs money not a lot of money but it costs money for hosting fees for equipment for bandwidth all these different things so I started a Kickstarter, and if that gets funded, I promise that we will do a year's worth, at least, of video game sequel cast uh, as a podcast. And it's a modest goal, $300, and you can donate, you know, whatever you can afford, a minimum of $1. And if you go to the Facebook page, we have a link on there. I'd read the link out loud, but it's way too convoluted. (laughs) 
to go to. But if you go to kickstarter.com and search SequelCast, uh, you can find the Video Game Sequel Cast project and donate to it if you choose, which I'd recommend. Also, if you go to iTunes and look up Sequel Cast, uh, leave us a review on there, because we need that too. That, that, all that stuff helps us. Because don't you think a video game sequel cast show would be pretty interesting if we got the funding for it? It'd be, it'd be worth trying out. I mean, we, we may even be able to pull, pull together a special episode just testing out the concept, let people know what they might be in for. Oh, like a test pilot. That's a good idea. Or backdoor I, I said, pilot, my favorite kind of pilot. Because it's not a door unless it's a backdoor. <laughs> Men in Black. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is such an iconic movie. It's so difficult to jump around. We can talk about some more of the characters. Uh, did you enjoy Linda Florentino as Doctor uh, Weaver? Yes, actually, I did. I like that. I like that. There's an, that. There's another character that's kind of. She makes another good counterpoint to to Smith and Jones because she's very perceptive. She's very very smart, and she's she's not willing to accept simple answers. And I, I like how she is also sort of she is also slowly brought into their to their investigation. She's a uh, well she she's she's a, she works in the in the city morgue if I remember correctly. Right, and what they're doing is they're investigating the assassination of the. The diplomat from the alien planet that's supposed to have the galaxy on him, and he was killed by the bug, but you know they still don't know where the galaxy is, but all the the uh, diplomat had on him was his pet cat, so the pet cat for some reason is in the morgue with the corpse and all this stuff well, where else right keep it? yeah, yeah, I don't know it's a cat, so um you also have a cameo from David Cross in this film, oh yeah. Was this around the was this for Mr. Show at the time? Was this was after Mr. Show was finished? Ninety seven. Pardon? Was Mr. Show still going on when this film came out? Yes, it was still going on. Uh, I see. Okay. It had yet to be completely screwed over by HBO by being put on at uh, three a.m. Uh, Mondays. Well, you got to remember in the nineties. At the time, HBO was very limited as far as what they did as original series and their approach to them. I mean, now all the HBO stuff is so high profile, whether it's Sopranos, uh, Deadwood, or Game of Thrones. Yeah, back in the is 90s, some, HBO yeah. was still doing a lot of hidden camera shocking Like low type, budget, uh, yeah. They were like blowjobs and Taxi Cab, the TV show. Taxi Cab Confessions. Yeah, yeah, right. Or, uh, oh, what was the one? Man, it was like... They promised like sexy footage, but it's always like middle-aged people at oh, a nudist camp in oh, Arizona. There, there was two. There was two of those. Real sex, right? They have the real sex, and there was also <laughs> sex bites. Oh, jeez. And uh, what was the Ralph uh, Bakshi? Oh, cartoon? Spicy City. Yeah, now yeah. that's actually pretty good. Uh, I actually, sadly, Spicy City has never been released uh, no. officially on on DVD. But I did, was able to get a bootleg at a convention a few years ago. It actually holds up really well. I mean, you hmm. see so much. After you see the first season and you realize it only had that one season, you realize how much great potential was squandered. Uh, it was sort of it was it was a cyberpunk noir animated series, uh, and its style was kind of fifty percent old school Fleischer animation and fifty percent old school Tezuka animation. It, it was amazing. 
Yeah, I, I saw that a little bit as a uh, high school student, but didn't get much into it. But uh, I, I have liked a lot of Ralph uh, Bakshi stuff since then. And we even covered a Ralph Bakshi film, uh, The Lord of the Rings, uh, mm. a very, very old episode of Sequel Cast, which you can catch at SequelCast.com. Um, I don't know why we're getting so off-topic with Men in Black. Is it because it's more difficult to talk about a good film than a bad film? No, usually we only have this problem with bad films, but hmm. it, it, is, it is strange. Cause like Men in Black, it's a movie that I thoroughly adore. I still like watching it now. I don't know. I guess you know I've spent 15 years praising this movie. Maybe I've, just, maybe I've run out of things to say. I think part of it, the plot is so slight and so basic, which works very well for this film as compared to, you know, Men in Black 2, as we'll talk about next week. And I'm I'm hoping Men in Black 3 is a lot better, which already from the trailer, just the imitation that uh, Josh Brolin does of Tommy Lee Jones is astonishing. Oh, yes. As the younger version of that character, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Um but with this Men in Black one, the plot kind of goes all around the place. Uh, Rip Torn is enjoyable as kind of one of the head people. Uh, Zed, right? And, uh, Zed, yeah, yeah, Zed and the Men in Black uh, agency. And you get this very uh, classic joke where they open up a huge computer screen and they say, these are all the people on the Earth that are aliens. And it shows, like, Michael Jackson and all these different celebrities. And then it also shows uh, Will Smith recognizes his um, uh, so elementary like a, school teacher. second grade teacher, I think. His second grade teacher. And he's like, oh, I thought she was from Saturn. And then Tommy Lee Jones is like, well, she's from Jupiter, actually. But yes, she's an alien. Yeah, there, there were some fun things like that. Although that does bring up, that does bring up a, a problem uh, that crops up really more in urban fantasy than science fiction. But the idea that if you're not human and you need to keep a low profile, why do you become a world-famous celebrity? Hmm. Um, because you still like the attention? I don't know. Well, maybe people will... Know, well, maybe, you know, I guess... I guess it could be the idea of, like, hiding in plain sight. If everybody knows you exist, they'll notice if you go missing... And again, it also brings up the question: Okay, let's say let's say let's say Michael Jackson or his teacher is an alien. Why are they seeking refuge on Earth? What the hell are they trying to get away from? <laughs> you know, I really don't know. I think it's meant just to be a quick joke. But the more you think about it, the more it kind of breaks down. Well, that that's something I do for the plot of the movie for. It, uh, is that Michael Jackson being an alien is just a joke in the background on this monitor. They don't they don't dwell on it. It comes and goes really quick, and you get a good chuckle from it, which is really about all that joke deserves. We'll go into how they thoroughly uh, brutalize that joke in the second film when we do the second film. Right. Yeah. Um, speaking of which. Um about Men in Black, I, I recall, I, I was trying to track this down, I couldn't find it, but uh, the, you know, now sadly departed science fiction author Douglas Adams, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, oh, yes. uh, Dirk Gently, uh, Detective Agency, all, all this different stuff. Zarquan, bless his soul. Yeah, no, uh, big influence upon me and what I like and all these things. I was tremendously sad when he died of a heart attack uh, from doing the treadmill at the gym was apparently out of shape or, or whatever but um, the point is 
he, when Men in Black came out, uh, Douglas Adams was very, very upset because he felt like they ripped off of a lot of concepts of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, specifically that of a humanoid alien being on Earth and nobody knowing, nobody knowing that he was an alien. But I have to argue against that. I think that's a, sort of a common theme in science fiction. I don't know if you could really call Men in Black a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy ripoff. Like, I don't really see that connection I, so well. I, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I mean, if it could only be in the, most, in the broadest strokes. I mean, the, the, the idea of aliens hiding, hiding among us has been around for for quite some time. Uh, you know, it's, it's in the Harlan Ellison story, Take the Coins from My Eyes, from I think the 70s was when that was written. Uh, but it also it goes all the way back to the Twilight Zone in the 50s, and I'm sure if we dig deeper, we'll find even earlier examples of, uh, of aliens uh, secretly living amongst humans. And, and, you know, wasn't there an episode of uh, the Twilight Zone, as you mentioned, where it's like a suburban... Um, like a, a suburb complex of houses and a bunch of the neighbors are aliens, really, uh, but it's like a theme for communism or something. Uh, actually, right? no, the episode you're thinking of, it's uh, the monsters who do on Maple Street. Yeah. Where uh, where the people hear, if I remember correctly, people hear a news report about like an, a strange object in the sky and then the power goes out and paranoia and tension builds until mm. everyone in the city is thoroughly convinced that everyone else in the city must be some sort of alien infiltrator, and eventually the city breaks down into cha- breaks down into total chaos and starts tearing itself apart in a riot. Which then brings us uh, skip ahead about a minute if you don't want spoilers. Which brings us to the bittersweet ironic ending is that on top of a hill overlooking the city are two actual aliens with a machine that can turn the power in the town on and off. Who this is all part of their psychological warfare to destabilize the Earth before they invade. So there were never any aliens in the city. There were just aliens outside uh, manipulating them by simply by turning the lights on and off. I see. Um, I mean, that's a Twilight Zone episode I vaguely remember because we had to watch it in school one day when there was a substitute. Don't ask me what class or why. Uh, but, right. I mean, I think if anything, um, not to speak on his behalf, and I... I I can't do that anyway. He's dead and I never knew him or whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> with Douglas Adams, author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I think he was just frustrated because in 97, you know, by that point, he'd been trying to get Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy made as a Hollywood movie for over a decade. And to see like a science fiction comedy make over half a billion dollars worldwide must have really hurt his feelings and kind of hit him close to the heart. Well, you know, it's... Yeah, yeah, he he really did work hard to try to get that movie made, and honestly, I'm di- I'm I'm very disappointed with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie we did eventually get. But it is such a shame that a movie like Men in Black comes out proving that you can do a big budget science science fiction comedy, and yet it still takes, and and yet the studios still don't want to sign off on the Hitch on the Hitchhiker's Guide, despite the fact that it is such a thoroughly proven property. I could go off in a big rant of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie, but Bonus that episode? would... Um, you know, we could do a, a... Later on, depending on... You know, if we're running out of ideas for sequel cast, we could do a two-episode series, one of which is like the miniseries BBC, and one is of which the Hollywood movie. Well, what if we just what if we just did a special episode that's just movies we can rant about? 
where it's just a roundtable <laughs> where we rant about movies we can rant about. Yeah, sure. That sounds fine. The rant cast. Back to Men in Black for fuck's sake. Oh yes, that that's there too. Jesus, that's what we're actually supposed to be talking about. Um <laughs> So you get a big climax at the end. They eventually meet up with the giant bug. And you get the sort of business of Tommy Lee Jones gets swallowed inside the bug and he sets off a grenade. And in the meantime, Will Smith is trying to talk trash to buy time. Oh, I love the, tra- I love the trash talking scene. He steps on cockroach and says, ooh, is that your uncle? I'm not sure. Oh, wait, maybe that's your sister. He doesn't oh, sound yeah. like that, but... It's it's very funny. It's you know, I think it's an interesting way of you're dealing with the point of technology in 1997 where you didn't have a lot of human and uh, CG characters fighting like doing fist fights or anything. So it's how do you get this action done without just having them shoot at each other the whole time? It's a very weird sort of climax. It's not it's not action-packed, even though one of the heroes gets swallowed alive. Well, I think it works, though. I mean, the, te- the tension's pretty yeah. high. If the if the bug gets to the spaceship hidden at the World's Fair and escapes, then Earth is fucked. So you got to do anything you can to buy time and, 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 and get him to stick around so you can get the galaxy. Right. And yet, like, six years later, uh, I believe you were with me, Thrasher. We went to the theater to see Hellboy oh, yeah. in Savannah, Georgia. And at the end of Hellboy... Um, there's a part where there's a monster at the end and someone gets, throws a grenade in the monster's mouth or goes inside the monster and the monster explodes. And I couldn't help but to think of this ending of Men in Black. Well, it's not a, it's not a bad ending. I mean, it, it, it does, it does work. We get a, we get our final confrontation with the bug. Oh, and actually, I guess we should mention, I, I don't know if we're giving anything away, but at this point they have discovered what the galaxy is. The galaxy is this bauble on the collar of the, of the alien's cat. Yeah, and when I saw the movie for the first time, this totally surprised me. Did you get this the first time through? Well, I I figured out I I figured it out before the the characters did. Uh, mm. But it's not it's not a bad little mystery. I mean, it's 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 Sherlock Holmes' The Speckled Band, but done in a sci-fi action movie, where a dying person is so delirious they can't find the words to to explain a key piece of information. So, you know, just as in Sherlock Holmes and the Speckled Band, the woman is trying to say she was attacked by a poisonous snake, but all she can say is, Speckled Band! And so when the alien is killed here, uh, and he's trying to explain that the galaxy is on the cat's collar, uh, all he all he can get out is, the galaxy is on Orion's belt! Probably because in the alien's native language, they don't, they only have one word for belt and collar or anything else that straps around you. Yeah, I did not pick up on this the first time I saw this film, but watching it especially for this uh, episode of the sequel cast, there was a lot of close-ups held on the cat's collar earlier in the film. There's like a lot of pan-ins, zoom-ins into the uh, painting of the cat with the collar. Well, that's why... well, that's why I figured it out, because there's a scene where you can clearly see that the cat's uh, tag says Orion. That too, so... Uh, one big character we haven't mentioned from Men in Black is Frank the Pug, voiced by Tim Blaney, oh, yeah. who, in this film, is only in a short scene. I imagine Frank the Pug will be in Men in Black 3, which um, we're going to review in a few weeks when it comes out in theaters. But, um, yeah, Frank the Pug. 
Yeah, he's an it, informant. It, it, he's an informant, but you, you see the scene setting it up, and the person sitting next to him is obviously dressed to look like a cosplay of Riff Raff from Rocky Horror Picture Show. He's just a complete and total freak. Com- right, but it's the same outfit, the same hairstyle. It's not the same actor. It's not Richard O'Brien. But it might as well have been. I, I always like to imagine that that wasn't a real guy. It was an animatronic human that was assigned to Frank <laughs> the Pug to make his disguise more convincing. Yeah, but, you know, it's nice sort of surprise. And I, I love Tommy Lee Jones picking up Frank the Pug and shaking him to get information. Which, and the which, voice of way, Frank you shouldn't do to an actual dog. Only aliens disguised as dogs. That's animals. No, and you, sh- you shouldn't do that to babies either. That's a, a bad idea all around. But Frank the Pug's voice is real sort of smart-ass. I'm like, hey, I don't know anything. Hey, oh, wait a second. Oh, 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 oh okay, okay, okay. So, so what's going to happen? Okay, so, I mean, he's a bit like Joe Pesci from the Lethal Weapon movies. He's kind of annoying. He delivers a key piece of exposition late in the film. Oh, you know what else we need to talk about is, is uh, Tony Shalhoub's alien pawnbroker. Right. It's only for one scene, but it's a scene that makes quite an impression. And this is before Tony Shalhoub... Um, I would say really broke out into the mainstream in yeah. the Monk TV uh, series, the detective show. But right, he's a sort of alien in a thing that's a, in a pawn shop that's supposed to be an undercover shop that sells uh, weapons in the black market, alien weapons at that. And Tom Mealy Jones is walking in. This is right after he's met Will Smith, and Will Smith is tagging along, not knowing what happens. Tom Mealy Jones whips out a gun and blows off the head of. Which, thankfully, after Will Smith has a good chance to panic and mug a little bit, the head regenerates. Yeah, the head regenerates. And that's an okay special effect, but it's definitely a surprise if you're watching the film for the first time. Although, I think that shot, I think that scene is actually in a lot of the trailers, so I think the impact is going to cut a little bit. No, I think you're right, and, um, you know, whatever the marketing they did with this film, it must have worked because it was extremely successful. Because the title, Men in Black, it's an okay title. It's not the best thing. But Will Smith is really hot at the time. Tommy Lee Jones, you know, he had just been in Batman Forever as Two-Face. And we've talked about um, the 90s and 80s Batman films on older episodes of the sequel cast. You can check us at sequelcast.com. And, of course, Tommy Lee Jones really took off in the mainstream with his part as the villain in The Fugitive starring Harrison Ford. It wasn't the villain. He was the antagonist. No, the antagonist, right. So, but I mean, Tommy Lee, Jones and Will, Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith were both very well-known names at this point. And to take a phrase from Men in Black 2, it's like the new hotness and the old hotness, right? <laughs> yeah. Old and busted, new hotness. <laughs> old and busted, new hotness. Yeah, so. Um, Barry Sonnenfeld, what do you think of him as a director? I like him. I get him confused with Barry Levinson because they both have a first name of Barry. But, uh, <laughs> Seinfeld started out as a cinematographer for a lot of um, Coen Brothers movies, like Blood Simple, Raising Arizona. And uh, he got his directorial debut with The Addams Family. He did both of the, the Addams Family and The Addams Family Values, starring Ra- Raul Julia and stuff. That's a series we need to cover. Yes, and I think we'd have to wrap it up with the third uh, direct-to-video one, Addams Family... Uh, with Tim Curry as Gomez. Oh, yes, Tim Curry as Gomez. Which was never released on DVD. It's only on YouTube or VHS. Adam's Family... Oh, what the fuck is that called? Jesus. It's, it's Adam's Family Vacation. I don't know. 
It might as well have been. I mean, it was meant to be the third theatrical film, and then Raul Julia died. So then they made it as like a made-for-TV movie back to our pilot, and then it later became a live-action show that did not have Tim Curry in the lead. Adam's Family Reunion, I think. Oh, no, that, yeah, that was it, Adam's. Well, I guess. Maybe it was it, yeah. Yes, 98. Yep. Uh, Tim Curry as Gomez Adams and Daryl Hannah as Morticia. Huh. Well, that's a mystery solved. Ba-da-ba. Yeah, so. Men in Black, we've been talking a lot about Men in Black, and I think before we go into our closing segments on the show, uh, would you recommend Men in Black? Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. I think it holds up really well. Um, Even though, you know, Will Smith, I'm like, you know, I just turned 30 recently, so I mean, I'm a bit older now. Watching this film, uh, Will Smith was more annoying to me as he was as a kid, but he's still, he's a very charming actor, if nothing else. Has a lot of good one-liners. I think the script is very strong. Whether a lot of it was improvised or not, who knows. It's really good casting in this film. You have a bad guy in this one that is kind of scary, kind of threatening, which I think kind of moves the plot forward, and there's not that much exposition. But with all this setup, where can they possibly go for a sequel? The sky is the limit, but the limit they chose for Men in Black 2, as we'll discuss next week, well, that's a whole other story. Well, that actually goes into the, the film's the film's twist, because after... after uh they defeat the alien bug. There's a nice kind of touching scene with uh, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, where Tommy Lee Jones is is uh, oh yeah is showing you know saying like you know you you've the really wife. proved you can be you can be a man in black. You know you you pass the audition effectively, and and Will Smith's like oh, oh so so you finally found a new partner, and then Tommy Lee Jones explains no, I found my replacement, and hmm. you realize that Tommy Lee Jones is like his old partner is tired of the game, and that this wasn't him. This was him. We were led to believe that he was looking for a new partner, and we are. It's revealed that that is not the case. And there's kind of there's like a nice little connection between the two characters. And then Will Smith has to uh, erase Tommy Lee Jones's memory and send him back in the world, where he can connect to this uh, to this woman that he still pines for. And it's really it's really great, you know. And and then L gets. Oh, and then then the uh, the woman from the morgue gets recruited as Agent L, which so it's great. We get all. All the little threads get tied up with a nice little bow. Everyone gets their everyone gets their reward. Everything is set up so that the franchise could continue. Uh, you know, and, and then uh, a few years later, we got to see the promise of the end of this movie uh, butchered by the studio. Yeah, I mean it's. Right. I think the first film works so well is a very difficult act to follow. And there's, any, you know, the concept of hidden aliens on Earth. You could go anywhere with that concept. And where they go with Men in Black 2 is so... Where they go is down the toilet, but we'll save that for that episode. We'll save that for next week. Although I, although I will say this. I yeah. do believe that Men in Black 2 is the worst sequel ever made, so I'm looking forward to tearing into it uh, very savagely. I came out of the theater of Men in Black 2 shaking with rage. I was on a, a, a date with a, a, a girl I was dating for that particular summer that film came out, and I was angry. I was, like, cursing and screaming, and she couldn't understand it. She was like, well, it wasn't that bad. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, it, it was. was. <laughs> 
but not to play our cards too much. Oh, yes. So we're going to play our uh, some of our games on the sequel cast. We'll start out with Pitch a Sequel. We pretend none of the sequels after Men in Black 1 existed, and we get to pitch our own idea for a sequel to the original Men in Black. My pitch with Men in Black would be a, uh, a prequel called Man in Black. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the backstory implied in Men in Black 1 about Tommy Lee Jones's character when he was a, a teenager. He was uh, just driving his car, accidentally bumped into an area where there was a UFO landing. And the Men in Black Society was formed to begin with. He was kind of scripted in there. And I would kind of go into that story a bit more. I thought that was an interesting thread. And, you know, how does this hillbilly kid out of nowhere get conscripted? into the Men in Black, and what would the Men in Black uh, weapon technology look like in the 50s or 60s? Pretty cool. Yeah, and I, and maybe they'll touch on that some in Men in Black 3, which has time travel. I just don't know. But what's your pitch for Men in Black 2, pretending like Men in Black 2 and 3 do not exist? Well, I think mine... I think, I think mine uh, would be uh, some... Some aliens who have uh, who have a grudge against the Men in Black. Maybe they're an alien crime syndicate. Maybe they're alien terrorists. It, it, it really doesn't matter. But um, they these these alien uh, these aliens uh, engineer a crisis that requires just about all the Men in Black to show up to to solve it. Uh, and it just so happens that one of the the Men in Black have go, have gone rogue. There's an evil agent. And so when all of the men in black show up to this phony crisis, the rogue agent pulls out his neuralizer, erases the memory of all the men in black. Hmm. Except for Will Smith's character, who for uh, who basically was kind of doing something irresponsible and was late. So it's up to Will Smith's character and an agent uh, and a uh, mind-erased Agent L, they have to, they have to go on this... Uh, for lack of a better term, they have to go on a quest to get this technology that can undo the effects of neuralization before these uh, before these the rogue agent uses all the MIB technology to take over New York while these other aliens are getting ready to uh, to fuck with the Earth. So it's very much kind of like the Superman two idea of you take the heroes and you strip them of their power mm, to an extent, a little yeah. bit to an extent. And see how they react. I think that's pretty neat. That's clever. Um, so now on to our final segment of the sequel cast, What You're Watching, where we talk about a piece of media, whether it be a movie, video game, book, comic book, whatever, that we've um, experienced in the past week or so. So I will begin. This past week, I got to uh, fired up the Netflix watch instantly Did and watched know? an... I did, and I watched an 80s film I hadn't seen for at least 15 years, uh, Heathers. Oh, kick-ass. Starring Winona Ryder and uh, Christian Slater, both actors that have very much floundering careers as of late. But, um, you know, watching uh, Heathers after Columbine, after all these different high school shootings, Mm. is very bizarre. Um... Because when I last watched it, it was before that stuff happened. I think I was in middle school or high school. And a friend of mine had an old beat-up videotape copy taped off of HBO that we watched. And so watching Heathers now, which 
I would say in some ways is a precursor to the Tina Fey written film Mean Girls with uh, Lindsay Lohan. Uh, Heather's is about a girl in high school that's part of a popular clique, but then she falls in with kind of this new kid in school that's kind of a rebel, sort of a darker kind of... I wouldn't say goth necessarily, but he's sort of very sarcastic, smart-ass character played by Christian Slater. And they come up with these themes, well, these uh, popular kids are so terrible, we're just going to murder them in different ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, with Heathers, the thing I appreciated the most about it, watching it now, is in the climax, it's not like these... um, these teenage characters are killing other teenagers and love it every step of the way. Winona Ryder sort of realizes that Christian Slater is crazy and tries to stop him. You have a sort of moral code in the movie. And I thought that made it satisfying. I mean, I think it's a very disjointed picture. I thought it was amusing, but I didn't laugh out loud that much. Um, even though a lot of people call it a, sort of like a dark comedy, which it certainly is. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I think it's a, a flawed film, but it's very interesting and, and well worth the watch. I think it's something if you're a bit older, you might get more out of it than when you watched it as a kid. Have you seen Heather's recently, Thrasher? Not recently, no. It, it, it honestly, I, I think the last time I saw it was when I was in high school. Has your girlfriend watched it? I don't know. I ought to check. You should you should try and show it to her. I think she might get a kick out of it. I think I think we both would. I mean, it, it is yeah. a, it is a classic film. It's. It, like, I realize I think that the the only films that really portray high school realistically are the darkest films. Maybe Heather's and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's another favorite of mine. And uh, what the so hell, what? Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yeah, sure, why not? Well, uh, don't you have uh, something to ask me? What have you been watching? Ah, uh, yes, yes. Uh, I have uh, uh, I have actually recently I've been re-watching the entirety of Blackadder, the uh, BBC uh, comedy historical comedy series starring uh, Rowan Atkinson, which it's it's a tricky series to describe because there's four there's four seasons and uh, one Christmas special. There may be another special, but if if there is, I haven't been able to track it down. But the, the each each season takes place in a different era in Britain's past, and each one follows uh, Edmund Blackadder, who is a, uh, a a British nobleman. And he's not he's not reincarnated or anything. It's just that each each series is about someone on his family line. So I think it's like the first one. Uh, the first one, uh, he's he's the young uh, Edmund Blackadder is the youngest son of Richard the Third. In the in the second series, Blackadder the second, he is. Uh, a favored nobleman in the court of Queen Elizabeth. The third series, uh, Blackout of the Third, he is the butler to Mad King George. And uh, the fourth and final series, Blackout Goes Forth, he is a uh, he is an officer in the First World War. And they're they're just they're just fantastic. And one of the things I, lo- I it's just in classic British comedy form. None of the characters are good people. All the characters are just ruled by their by their flaws. And it's all just a chronicle of horrible things that these people are doing to themselves. Black Adder is a show I certainly need to watch. I know, I know. Years ago, Thrasher, you showed me some of one of the episodes set during 
an Inquisition in a prison or something. Ah, uh, yes, that was the last episode of Blackout of the Second, uh, a classic. Uh, Stephen yeah, Fry and uh, uh, Peter Lorre are in there, or Hugh Lorre, Hugh Lorre. Peter Lorre is dead. Right, it's called uh, Chains is the name of the episode. And uh, I, I've been meaning to get into it. I really need to. Um, yeah, I, I almost feel like I need to know, read up more about history to maybe get more out of the humor. Uh, I don't know. I mean, so a lot of the comedy is is pretty broad, but the, they all they they always pepper it with lots of historical references. Like uh, like there's there's an episode in Blackadder the Third where uh, it's like where all these classic it's it's all about language, and so the author of the first dictionary is a character, and so is. Uh, uh, Lord Byron and uh, a, a number of other uh, a number of other characters. Actually, it might not actually it might not be Byron. I may be getting that uh, maybe getting that off a bit. But but a, a number of classic uh, British poets who hmm. died of syphilis and tuberculosis. <laughs> Keats, I think, is among them. We got a little bit more time. We can mention something else we've been watching. Uh, <laughs> okay. I've been watching, or let me think for a moment. You know, I've been watching on and off this uh, sitcom uh, Community. Oh, fantastic. Which airs on NBC, and it's almost done with its third season. It just got renewed for like a half order of a fourth season, although it's unclear if Chevy Chase is going to be back on the show because he's been getting into some legendary fights with the uh, creator and producers and so forth. Oh, he's Chevy Chase. Uh, yeah, he has sort of that reputation. Uh, but yeah, Community, it's a show I kind of warmed up to. I didn't like it as much to begin with. And I, I think the third season has been sort of hit and miss. And if you're going to watch an episode of Community, and you can watch it all streaming on Hulu+, Plus, it might even be on Netflix, Watch instantly, I'm not even sure. But uh, there's an episode in season two where it's all about them playing a, a Dungeons & Dragons game. Oh, it's fantastic. That is by far the best episode of the series, in my opinion, because I used to play a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. And uh, so, But my wife liked it, and she's never even played Dungeons & Dragons. It has enough humor that makes it funny. But my favorite part of that episode has nothing to do with the dialogue. It's that it has a music score done in the style of Lord of the Rings or Willow or something. Yeah, I believe copies. the episode even opens with like an epic fantasy orchestration of the show. Yeah, yeah it does. Thing. It's a different even like theme song sequence on that episode. But there's so much effort put into that particular episode. And recently in season three, there was a really good episode that parodied the uh, Ken Burns style of Civil War documentaries, except this was about a pillow fight. Oh, it was great. Uh, happening across the whole high school. So Community, I would recommend. I think you have to give it a bit of time. The first season, I don't think, is great, but it improves from there. It's quirky. It's weird. Sometimes the episodes parody a different genre each time, but not always. It's a really hard show to describe. Well, it's very, like a lot of Dan Harmon's stuff, it's very metafictional. In a lot of ways, the third season of Community has been a satire of the first two seasons of Community. They're always playing around with formats. They did, they did an episode parodying Law and Order, and it's just beat for beat. It is shot and acted like an episode of Law and Order. And there's an episode where they have a, they're playing the board game, and whatever they or Yahtzee, and whatever like number comes up, it's an alternate reality version of the scene you just saw, and it's a different character who enters the door. Well, what what it is is each time. they've ordered pizza. And they, no one wants to leave to get the pizza, so they roll a die to determine who gets the pizza. 
but it shows the outcome of every possible die roll. And what's great is the is the, is the, the 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 there's a great moment at the end where they realize, wait a minute, there's six of us at the table. No, there's seven of us at the table, but only six sides of the die. The only reason you didn't pick, the only reason you picked this option for die rolling to determine who gets the pizza is because you, it, since we start counting from your from your right, you could never be the one to get the pizza. And there's this whole thing about free will. That episode has actually been nominated for the prestigious uh, Hugo Award. Hmm. Very nice. Um, so to wrap things up, what is something else you've been watching, Thrasher, or reading, or, or whatever? Oh, gosh. Well, it's been a few weeks. Yeah, it has been. Um, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think of, of what uh, of what really st- stands out of, uh, of of what I've been exposing myself to most recently. Oh, actually, uh, interestingly enough, I've, I've been watching a good chunk of Glee, which is it's much better than I thought. It's 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 a very enjoyable show. I saw all of the first season of Glee, uh, Glee being a musical sitcom. What the hell do you even call it? I don't even know. It's no, kind of it's, a soap it's, opera, it's too. A, it's a, well, I guess it's, a, it's a musical comedy or a musical drama. It really depends. It's a musical show. I've seen all of the first season, and I just got kind of burned out on it. Because um, I think the thing about Glee that annoys me the most, I think the characters are funny. I like some of the dialogue. But I think the arrangement of some of the music, it makes... Even a memorable pop song sound very milk toast. Well, the thing, the thing that the 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 thing that does it for because it's hard to tell whether this is on purpose or not because all musicals, by their nature, are artificial. But yes. there's a there's at least without the first season, there's a whole runner about how uh, the school's budget is very very tight, and you know the the Glee Club is always in danger of having its budget cut, and most of the conflict between the Glee Club director and Jane Lynch's character, the cheerleading director, come from this budget squabbles. And yet, this school can afford every kind of instrument ever invented, can afford endless costume changes for the Glee Club, can afford a pyrotechnics. Well, and of course, the real genius of Glee from a business perspective is every episode, they come out with a mini-album worth of covers that releases on iTunes that same day. Well, I, I figure that 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 covers the cost of. I'm sure that that covers a cost. The cost of uh, licensing all the the songs that they use. And um, okay, well, uh, yeah, no, I, you know, I, I don't know, I, well, Glee, I'm not crazy about. I liked another show much better by the same creators of Glee called American Horror Story. Hmm. Um, it's only had one season so far on FX. Uh, that should be coming out on DVD and Blu-ray pretty soon. But it's, to put it simply, a, a haunted house story taking place over a whole season. But it involves history, and it goes to some surprisingly dark and weird places. Speaking of haunted houses, check out Cabin in the Woods while you still can. I need to. I haven't seen that yet. But uh, I'm going to give away a prize. Oh? To round out this episode of the sequel cast on Men in Black. I'm not eligible, I know. Well, you are. It depends how quick you are. Okay. The catch. Okay. So, first come, first serve. Uh, so, I just purchased recently Diablo 3 for the PC. Uh-huh. And in it, it comes with a few of these guest pass things, where if you type in this code, 
at uh, www.diablo3.com slash guest. And Thrasher, you are eligible if you can do this quick enough before the listeners do. So have your pen and paper ready. Okay. Uh, if you type in this code, you get a free guest pass key to, pay, to play Diablo 3, which means you can play a character up to level 10. Uh, actually, I have a, with a question for you. Is it legal yes. to distribute these codes over a podcast? Um... Sure you can. People are putting these codes on Twitter and stuff. Okay. And if the code doesn't work when someone types it in, well, that means someone else has already taken it. So. Oh, I see. So I'm going to give away one of these codes. And you can take it if you want, Thrasher. Would you like me to email you one apart from the show? No, no fr- frankly, I don't have time to play Diablo 3 right now. All right. So if you want a chance to play Diablo 3, a guest pass for free on the PC or Macintosh. It's not the full game. It's just uh, like the first 10 levels or so. Uh, here's the code you have to type in at www.diablo3.com slash guest. Okay? H-V-T-8-H-9-T-Y-G-Y-J-Z-B-9-C-H-G-N-M-R-T-C-9-K-Y-Y. So and a partridge in a pear tree. And a partridge in a pear tree. That's the guest pass code for Diablo 3 to uh, play it for free on PC or Macintosh up to uh, experience level 10 or so. Redeem it at Diablo3.com slash guest. And um, I'm just throwing it out there. If someone enjoys it, I, you know, all the power to them. So, uh, next week on the sequel cast, we'll be covering Men in Black 2. Under duress. Under dress, of course. Uh, check us out at SequelCast.com. Go to Facebook.com slash SequelCast. Or look us up on iTunes. Just search SequelCast. And be sure to check out the uh, Kickstarter for the potential uh, for us to do a SequelCast video game, a spinoff podcast. Go to Kickstarter. Just search SequelCast. Uh, for the SequelCast, this is Matt. <laughs> and Thrasher. Saying. You are in violation of Articles 3, 7, and 10 of the Tyco Treaty. Here come the men in black. Galaxy Defenders. So the darkest of night on the horizon, bright light into sight tight. Camera zoom on the impending doom, but then like boom, black suits fill the room up with the quickness. Talk with the witnesses, hypnotize up, normalize up. Vivid memories turn to fantasies. Ain't no one my bees, can I please? Do what we say, that's the way we kick it. Yeah, you know I mean, let's see the noisy cricket get.